Good morning. Welcome to With God at Dawn. We're continuing to read our book, The Source, by Alex Ortega. We're up to chapter 19, The Faith of Jesus. Is it important to believe what God believes? So someone says, but is it a salvation issue? There are basically two reasons for the question. Some people, after absorbing this startling information that we've been reading, decide they do not want to hear anymore. Even ministers are moved emotionally to say, that's my church. Of course, the loyalty is understandable. When they say, that's my church, they're speaking about the apostasy that, had, that began in the church that we've been reading about in the former chapters. And they just say, that's my church. We identify with this church, even if there's been this apostasy. Of course, he says, the loyalty is understandable, especially when the church has been given over to the idea that it is the true church. The other reason is this very uncomfortable feeling that the information might be right and it could require a significant investment of time and study in order to arrive at the truth. That's exactly how I felt. When I first started learning these things, I felt overwhelmed and afraid that I would make a mistake. There's also a lurking element of risk. All through history, the minority that is right does not fare well when the majority is wrong. Two distinct groups are formed that either persecute or become the persecuted. It should not take too much reasoning to acknowledge that the meek persecuted ones are the opposite of the powerful persecutors. That's almost always the case, isn't it? The ones who are persecuted are the meek ones. The powerful persecutors <laughs> always seem to be the ones in the majority. Which group would you say displays the character of Christ? In matters of salvation, does it make a difference? True religion is about the heart. Whatever has the heart has the whole person. Doctrine by itself, however, only touches the head and starts wars. It's hoped that the reader will opt for a peacemaker attitude and quietly but persistently cling to a thus saith the Lord. Religious liberty is the badge of love and respect. These pages are an appeal to intelligent reasoning and careful consideration of the plain statements of the word of God, but be warned, the persecuting spirit of controlling force will be evident in those who object and must rule or ruin. So we now, yeah, if they can't rule, they're going to ruin. That's interesting. We now turn to the unhappy task of dismantling various arguments that are used to deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John Harvey Kellogg was not successful in making his Trinity views acceptable to the denomination. He deceived some of the theological and scientific bent, but the membership remained non-Trinitarian. Ellen White was instructed to meet it, and she did. There's an article that she wrote that was titled Meet It, and she tells her dream vision that she had. Leroy Froome, on the other hand, was spectacularly successful in planting the banner of the Trinity in the church. What was the difference? The voice of Ellen White had been silenced by death, in 1919 had happened. Having dispatched the pioneers as untutored without advanced training and qualifying degrees, the educators had moved to the more difficult question, what about Ellen White? 
This was a question asked and discussed at the 1919 Bible Conference. Okay, quote, what is the exegetical value of a testimony? Question. Are the explanations of scripture dependable? To the believers in the testimony of Jesus, the question is jarring, yet the discussion follows. When Prescott enters the discussion, he makes an interesting point. Quote, in connection with what Brother Taylor has asked, I would like to suggest that this, whether a comment on the spirit of prophecy upon an authorized version establishes that version as the correct version against the revised version, where the reading is changed, and if one accepted the revised version, it would throw out the comment made in the spirit of prophecy. I have a definite case in mind. Quote. Boy, that's interesting. I never thought about that. Um, wow. In other words, if Ellen White depended on the King James Bible, her comment would be based on an inferior Bible. Prescott followed the discussion with this question. That's going to take some thinking, isn't it? Um, how should so Prescott asks this? How should we use the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy as an authority by which to settle historical questions? Daniels and Prescott both reminded the group that Mrs. White said she was not an authority of history. Daniels then brought up the daily. His comment is noteworthy. Quote, then I would leave that, and I would go on about this daily. Why, she said, Brother Daniels, I do not know what that daily is, whether it is paganism or Christ's ministry. That was not the thing that was shown me. And she would go into that twilight zone right away. The twilight zone? Oh. Wasn't that a clever thing he just said? It creates all kinds of doubt. The twilight zone? That's not the version she shared with F.C. Gilbert in the interview in 1910. Quote, I saw why it was that Daniels was rushing this thing from place to place, for he knew that I would work against it. That is why I know they did not stand the testing. I knew they would not receive it. The time has come when his presidency should come to an end. He has been in too long. This whole thing they are doing is a scheme of the devil. He has been president too long and should not be there any longer. That was written in St. Helena, June 8, 1910. F.C. Gilbert. In the same interview, she had that's what Ellen White said to F.C. Gilbert, and he had record of it. So in the same interview, she said this, Daniels was here to see me, and I would not see him on any point, and I would not have anything to say to him about anything, about this daily that they are trying to work up. There's nothing in it. We are to have nothing to do with this question of the daily. I have written to him and told him that he was showing himself not fit to be president of this general conference. He was showing that he was not the man to keep the presidency. I was told not to have any more conversations with him about any of these things. I would not see Daniels about the matter, and I would not have one word with him, end quote. Today, the denomination teaches the daily of Daniels and Prescott, the scheme of the devil. Why? Quote, what shall we as teachers do when we stand before our classes and some historical questions come up, such as we have spoken of here, where we have decided that Sister White's writings are not final, do you like the way he says that? They decided her writings aren't final. We say there are many historical facts that we believe scholarship must decide. In other words, this is their um, critical thinking, whatever they call it. Okay, J.N. Andrews, 1919 Bible Conference. 
So Froome had 1919 as a foundation for his grand illusion that the truth was evolving and we needed the Sunday scholars to help us. The pioneers having been disposed of and the spirit of prophecy is relegated to a commentary on an inferior Bible and her historical views are subject to real history. The way was open for even Ellen White to evolve. When she matured, she would return to her Methodist roots and give up the only true God and embrace the Trinity. That's what they said. Let it be remembered that Froome set out to change the impaired image of Adventism in the world. It was necessary to join the churches of the world in the eternal verities. He personally had convinced the Sunday leaders that Seventh-day Adventists were Trinitarians. He used their language because he learned it from them. Now he had another problem. How would he convince the Seventh-day Adventists they were Trinitarians? Here is where the masterpiece of deception begins to unfold. His research in the writings of Ellen White produced statements that, taken from their settings, could be misapplied. And I'll just add here that you will notice that in the books that were put together after her death, they will insert titles and footnotes that had nothing to do with anything she said, and that will mislead you into thinking that that's what the subject matter is about. So watch out for that. Okay, um, here is where the masterpiece of deception begins to unfold. His research in the writings of Ellen White produced statements that, taken from their settings, could be misapplied. He compiled lists of quotations from her later writings during and after the Kellogg crisis and put a trinity spin on them. He uncovered a bombshell statement that he claimed proved that Ellen White changed and was a Trinitarian from that point. The crucial year was 1898. The book, The Desire of Ages, the statement is on page 530. Quote, Jesus declared, I am the resurrection and the life. In Christ is life, original, unborrowed, and underived, end quote. According to Froome, this statement means that Christ has always been, and this proves his deity. Using Prescott's logic, if Christ had a beginning, then he would be a creature. Both of these scholars failed to understand the intent of the statement. Let's first examine the context. The chapter is entitled, Lazarus, Come Forth. The familiar story is about the death and raising of Lazarus. The issue is the power of Jesus to raise the dead because he is the resurrection and the life. So the setting is about life. The statement begins, in Christ is life. The statement does not say Christ is life. The key word is in. The sentence is not about his nature and does not tell us how life came to be in him to assume he has always been because there is underived life in him is a disastrous misreading and speculation. The Bible and the spirit of prophecy tell us how life, original, unborrowed, underived, came to be in him. John 5, verse 26 tells us, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. The Father, the unbegotten, who has always been, has life inherent in himself. The Son was given life by the Father. He has life in him by inheritance. Hebrews 1, 2, and 4. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, so by inheritance. Great Controversy, page 477. Here are revealed the heights of attainment. 
that we may reach through faith in the promises of our Heavenly Father when we fulfill his retirement. Through the merits of Christ, we have access to the throne of infinite power. He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The Father gave his Spirit without measure to his Son, and we also may partake of its fullness. I'm going to turn off my chart. Maybe I don't need to. <laughs> okay. So we also may partake of its fullness. Desire of Ages, page 210. The humble Nazarene asserts his real nobility. He rises above humanity, throws off the guise of sin and shame, and stands revealed the honored of the angels, the Son of God, one with the creator of the universe. His hearers are spellbound. No man has ever spoken words like his, or borne himself with such a kingly majesty. His utterances are clear and plain, fully declaring his mission and the duty of the world. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he's the Son of Man. Okay, now let's examine a complete statement to see how Ellen White uses the word original, unborrowed, and underived. One Selected Messages, page 296, if you're writing these down. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, John 1, 4. It is not physical life that is here specified, but immortality the life which is exclusively the property of God. The Word who was with God and who was God had this life. Physical life is something which each individual receives. It's not eternal or immortal, for each individual receives it. For God, the life giver, takes it again. A man has no control over his life, but the life of Christ was unborrowed. No one can take this life from him. I lay it down of myself. It wasn't loaned to him, in other words. It was his. God gave it to him. He said, I lay it down of myself, John 10, 18. He said, in him was life, original, unborrowed, and underived. This life is not inherent in man. He can possess it only through Christ. He cannot earn it. It is given him as a free gift. If he will believe in Christ as his personal Savior, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. John 17, verse 3. This is the open fountain of life for the world. End quote. Okay, so please notice. Ellen White states that life, original, unborrowed, and underived, can be possessed by man. He cannot earn it. It's given to him as a free gift. If it can be possessed as a gift by man, it must not be a token of deity, Men do not become divine by possessing the gift of an unborrowed life. It's worthy of note that this scripture that's used in this connection, John 17, 3, there's only two divine beings in the verse, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Froome's phantom of Ellen White's Trinitarianism vanishes like smoke in the light of the Bible and a correct view of the spirit of prophecy. Looking more carefully, I think you'll find that's true every time too. <clears throat> 
Looking more carefully at page 530, if Ellen White had come out as a Trinitarian, then she would henceforth have used Trinity language like other churches. There would be no more references to the Son of God, which is an opposite thought. But we find these words after the epochal sentence, epochal sentence on the same page. Quote, to the Savior's words, Believest thou? Martha re responded, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. She did not comprehend in all their significance the words spoken by Christ, but she confessed her faith in his divinity and her confidence that he was able to perform whatever it pleased him to do. Devour pages, page 530. It would be very difficult to delete this reference to the Son of God since it's a direct quote from the Bible. As a matter of fact, to the end of her writing, she continued to refer to Jesus as the only begotten Son of God, speaking of Ellen White. One other thought that Froome and all his fellow Trinitarians have missed, Martha, in acknowledging Jesus to be the Son of God, had no problem at the same time confessing his divinity. In the New Testament, there's no problem concerning the Son of God being deity. That deity cannot be a son is the invention of Satan, continued by Rome, accepted by apostate Protestantism, and received by schoolmen trained in Sunday scholarship. There's another item Froome neglected to mention. The words Ellen White used were not original with her. She borrowed them from John Cummings, a Scottish preacher. He wrote a book entitled Sabbath Evening Readings of the New Testament. It was published in 1855. The quote is found on page 6. It was in her private library. Elder M. L. Andreasen, in a chapel talk he gave at age 72 at Loma Linda, said he saw the handwritten manuscript for Desire of Ages. He was surprised to see this sentence was her own expression, written by her own hand. There's two inconsistencies with this statement. In the first place, they were borrowed from another author. Secondly, there's no manuscript handwritten by Ellen White for Desire of Ages. Ooh. Marion Davis copied the Ellen White materials and pasted portions of these handwritten copies in a blank book to create the manuscript. What Andreasen saw were handwritten copies made by Marion Davis. This is pointed out because Marion Davis was the bookmaker. The pages and paragraphs she constructed did not always follow the sequence that Ellen White used. We will look more carefully at this as we continue to investigate. Froome's claim of a paradigm shift in the God Ellen White believed in is beginning to unravel. We need to ask some questions first. Let's see how the modern Froome's phrase the problem. One of the latest books written to protect the Trinity is by the triad W.W. W. Wooden, Jerry Moon, and John Reeve. Quote, is it not quite apparent that the problem texts become problems only when one assumes an exclusively literal um, okay, an exclusively literalistic interpretation of such expressions as I see as Father, Son, Firstborn, Only Begotten, and Begotten, so forth. Does not such literalism go against the mainly figurative or metaphorical meaning that the Bible writers use when referring to the persons of the Godhead? Can one really say that the Bible writers meant such expressions as the only true God and one God the Father to exclude the full deity of the Son, Christ Jesus? The Trinity by Whidden, Moon, and Reeve, page 106, 2002. So the problem is, people who accept the Bible the way it reads, they're saying, 
Only those who see the metaphorical meaning are benefited, they're saying. Does this remind us of origin? The scriptures are of little use to those who understand them as they are written, Origen said. According to the schoolmen, when John says the only true God and Paul says one God the Father, they really mean something else. That kind of devil talk might work with a captive audience at the seminary, but a reasoning free mind might find it hard to swallow. Most people have not been conditioned to believe the pagan philosophy of origin. Ever since Prescott in 1919 said, to believe Jesus is a son is to deny his deity. That's Arianism. Who cares? This is me speaking. Who cares what about it, about Arianism? We do not need to be threatened by a title, do we? Okay, continuing on. Our ministry has steadily succumbed to the trail of the serpent. Today, Arianism is identified with the cult known as Jehovah's Witnesses. Broom was possessed with the idea that we, as a denomination, must not be classed with a cult that believed Jesus was uh, the Son of God. His successful quest was in promoting the Sunday God until it became our official position. We've become Orthodox, and our members must believe in the Trinity or else. So we have here on the page, I'll try to describe it to you, two columns. On the left, it's titled E.G. White, 1905. On the right, it's titled William G. Johnson, 1994. So I'm going to read Ellen White's little column first, and then William Johnson. She says, Clearly, modern church leaders do not share the opinion of Ellen White, who stated that the men whom God raised up were diligent searchers of the scriptures and had said the Lord would have us at this time bring in the testimony written by those who are now dead to speak in behalf of heavenly things. That's Manuscript 75, 1905, pages 2 and 3, Building the Waste Places, May of 1905. Now, let me read uh, William G. Johnson, 1994. Only gradually did this false doctrine give way to the biblical truth, and largely under the impact of Ellen White's writings and statements such as in Christ is Life, original, unborrowed, and underived, found in Desire of Ages, page 530, William Johnson, Adventist Review, January 6, 1994, in the article Present Truth, Walking in God, God's Light. Which one is correct? Which one, Ellen White or Johnson? Okay, so that is the end of chapter 19, and tomorrow we're quickly getting to the end of our book, 27 chapters in the whole book. Tomorrow, chapter 20, Questions to Stir the Honest Heart. Dear Jesus, please bless those who are listening here today, that they'll be able to make sense of the things that we're reading and to make the proper notes for their own use. Thank you, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you, brothers and sisters. I hope to see you in the morning.